today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 20. The aftermath of Absalom's rebellion leaves a kingdom divided and teetering on the edge of chaos. As David regains control, a new crisis emerges when a cunning rebel named Sheba seizes the opportunity to challenge the king's reign. With loyalties tested and alliances shattered, David's trusted general Joab takes charge of the pursuit, determined to capture Sheba before his rebellion spirals out of control. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, July 10th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible in part by a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes Lutheran books and materials that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. Whether it's a catechism, a hymnal, a Bible storybook, or a devotional, LHF provides these resources free of charge to pastors, missionaries, and laypeople who need them. To learn more about LHF and how you can partner with them in all this vital mission work, visit their website at lhfmissions.org. You can see them at lhfmissions.org. Well, folks, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us open up, explore, discern, and divide 2 Samuel chapter 20. It's the Reverend Frank Rufato, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Charleston, West Virginia. Pastor Rufato, good morning and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good morning. Thanks uh, for having me again. Uh, You know, after the first one, I wasn't sure whether you'd want to do that or not. Uh, No, absolutely (laughs) happy to have you back. Yeah, we had a great conversation last time, focusing a lot on Romans 13, but more importantly, just how we can serve those in authority. Now we've brought you back, and speaking of those in authority, our text today deals with kind of that thing, right? We have King David, we had Absalom's rebellion, we got now people who are trying to rebel against God's anointed, um, we have Joab, the, 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 you know, we have all these different things that are going on. Um, it it kind of shows you that there has always been a conflict, especially in, um, in the halls of authority uh, since, since, well, forever, let's just say. Well, yeah, it seems to be sort of the fabric of our human nature. What do you mean I can't have that apple? I'm going to have that anyway. Uh, right. 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 So. Yeah, I didn't even want that fruit until you said I couldn't have it. So right. No, Oh, man. Well, today's a text, and all of First and Second Samuel has been really interesting to me. I've, you know, I read through it before. I've even taught it a little bit, but never as much of a deep dive as I've been able to do over these past few weeks. And so always learning something new. The Bible always has something to share with us. Um, before we get into our text for this morning, which is Second Samuel 20, um, would you start our time off together in prayer, please? Yes, let us pray. Uh, Lord, all eyes look to you, for you provide all that is good, and we are thankful for just the ultimate good that is your word, both the written word that points us to the living word that is Jesus. And so, Lord, as we um, study here in Second Samuel, we pray for your spirit, that you would guide us in, in right discernment of what we are reading and hearing, that we might grow in faith and um just delight in, in all that you have for us, Lord. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, as I like to do before we get right into the text, uh, would you like to catch people up just a little bit? Maybe introduce um, why we might, <laughs> where we're at, I guess, in, in chapter 20 to help people understand where we've been. Yes, yes. Well, well, well that little introduction you gave is really good, the, the rebellion of Absalom and all that. So, uh, so now in this chapter, we're going to have the rebellion of Sheba, which I think is an interesting name you know, if you think about David's uh, right, background right. a little bit. But Dave, David is trying to return to his throne in Jerusalem, and the northern tribes in Israel are, are just giving him a hard way to go, and so he needs to stop that, uh, so to speak. Um, and of course, again, his story, we know he's been humbled, he's been brought to repentance for his sin, but... Um, the shadow of rebellion, I guess, to, uh, to put it, the, the violence that's going on really just sort of haunts David. And I, I think it's sort of uh, well, applicable to us in the sense that, you know, yes, when we 
get up on Sunday morning and, and go to church and we hear the pastor declare the forgiveness of our sins, that does not mean that our sin is not going to bear some consequences down the road. Um, and so we don't want to mix up the fact that there's consequences with whether we're forgiven or not. When the pastor says it to you, you're forgiven, you are. And, uh, uh, you, but you still may have to, to deal with some of the fallout from whatever the sin you've confessed is. And I think that's a little bit what's going on with David here. Um, and I think there's a, a sort of hope in this, or at least a, a glimmer of hope, as we're seeing that David, David is being restored to the throne of Israel. And so this is fulfillment in a sense, or a beginning fulfillment of the promise that uh, there's going to be a son of David raised up. Uh, and of course, pointing to Jesus, whose reign will be eternal. Uh, so, so even through this, we're seeing that this is preparation almost as well for the kingdom to come, if I might put it like that. Well, we always talk about how the Old Testament points forward to the Messiah who's coming, and of course the New Testament reveals that Messiah as Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, I think, and we Lutherans do a really good job at this, of making sure that when we read the Scriptures, we always read, we always read them through the lens of Jesus. And so while we can see these things playing out for the people of that time, and we can even see things like prophecies being fulfilled— um, ultimately, all of this is really preparing us, as you said, for for the kingdom to come, for Christ. Um, so, yeah, let's let's just get right into the text. We're going to be, as I said before, in chapter 20, and I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm just going to read a little bit till it makes sense to stop. Here we go. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Betri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel uh, withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, or Bichri. Uh, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them but did not go into them, so they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if widowhood, or in widowhood. Let's, let's pause there. It's just at the end of verse 3. We didn't get very far. But um, there happened to be a worthless man. Um, I, I think it might be important to understand that this Sheba guy, when it talks about worthless men, um, that's, that's a pretty heavy insult. At least that's the way they're translating it. Well, that is one thing I think we, we can't shy away from as we read Scripture is that, you know, this is theology of the cross stuff here. We're going to call a thing what it is. Um, and, uh, and as a pastor, I'm not encouraging my people to run around going, hey, you're worthless, that kind of thing. But at the same time, we need to be discerning. Um, and so we know kinds of things that we don't want to get involved here. And, and, and I think this is set up here in verse 1 where he says, there's this worthless man. Well, uh, it's going to show us here a little bit why it's worthless uh, as he comes up against the authority of David. Yeah, and, and of course, at this point, this is a, what we might say in literature, it's a, it's a reliable or trustworthy narrator, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the Holy Spirit revealing to yeah. us the character of this guy, Sheba, the son of Bichri, I think is what I'm going to settle on. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. I'll pronounce it four or five different ways, but uh, Sheba, the son of Bichri. And, and the fact that he's a Benjaminite, that's probably a little bit significant um, sure because were. of Saul. Yeah, that's a tribe that Saul came from, as we know from 1 Samuel. <clears throat> yeah, And of course, uh, when the kingdom was later divided under David's grandson Rehoboam, if I say that correctly, um, I think Benjamin was the one that the tribe that was uh, left with Judah under that, the only one left there. And I think that's in Chronicles somewhere, if I recall. I'm not, I'm not flawless on my remembering chapter yeah, and verse sure. kind of there. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think a lot of this anxiety, too, that's coming out um, amongst the people. And, of course, I think the, let's say the, I don't know, the discontent that Sheba's trying to seize is found in our last chapter when we talked about chapter 19 um, in, in verses, I guess, around 41. Uh, it, it says, and I'm just going to read it. 
that all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at the king's expense? Have he, has he given us any gifts? And then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, Well, we have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then you, did you despise us, etc., etc.? So they've been arguing over <laughs> a, a little bit, and I don't want to push the analogy too much, but it, a little bit reminds me of when you have like a, a dual parish that decides to combine or a tri-parish. They start sure. to argue. They're, they're supposed to be brothers. They're supposed to be unified, but they're starting to argue over some of the silliest things. And in this case, they don't like the fact that David's going to be planting himself in Jerusalem and that, and that, you know, it just seems like they're not getting the fair share and the people who stood by David or they feel like they're not getting um, <laughs> what's really due them. And so I guess she was looking at this going, yeah, this is this is this is a good time to try to seize some power. And, and, and it does seem like this this is sort of a pattern with God's people in the Old Testament. And, and, and today, like you described the situation today of, you know, it. Sometimes as good as things can be, it's just not good enough. We have no portion in this. What are, you know, whatever are we going to do as folks lament uh, and, and kind of forget, we, we sort of forget the graciousness, the mercy, the generosity of our God uh, sometimes. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And so God is basically uniting the kingdom here, but, you know, people are trying to still work out what that's going to be. And this... Uh, Sheba, son of Bichri, uh, a man of wickedness, right? A man of Belial, it says. Um, he he blows this horn. He blows the trumpet. Uh, and I'm trying to picture in this in my head. You know, so he blows the horn. I guess half the Israelite army's already been gathered, and Sheba's leading them. So he basically gets the attention of his loyal men. And he says, yeah, listen. David's not our king, not hashtag not my king, right? right. <laughs> let's, you know, let's, uh, uh, and, and he doesn't actually really say yet what his solution is. He just says, everybody go to your tents. And, and they did. They followed him. Yeah, yeah every, everybody hunker down. We, we, you know, we can't follow this guy anymore. He's not really our king. So let's just hunker down. And that, uh, that is kind of interesting to me. So what is your plan? You know, uh, I wonder if he was really sort of winging it, for lack of a better, better way to put it. Yeah, it sounds very opportunistic. You know, he yes. senses all the, the division and goes, uh, you know, I don't like him either. And let's we're going to do something about it. So 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 here's what stands out to me, though. So all the men, they withdraw from David and they followed Sheba. Uh, but the men of Judah, of course, they're still loyal. They follow their king. But then three, he comes. So David's come back to Jerusalem, and we remember the ten concubines. We also remember that Absalom had gone into them in the sight of Israel, um, mm -hmm. very much a, a power play. Um, so he left them, but now he basically puts them under house arrest, and and it says living as if in widowhood. So while he cares for them, he really doesn't have anything to do with them anymore. Um, I guess because why? Why is that? Because of Absalom? Uh, yeah, I would I would think that that probably is um, since that since Absalom had his way, so so to speak. Um, and so uh, it seems to me that David still this and this is where I think we get a little glimmer of why David is described as a man after God's own heart. Yeah, I, I believe it's in James we talk about. Um, that uh, true religion is taking care of the widows uh, as part of that. And so right. David is treating them as such and making sure that they're taken care of. So I, I see that I see a little bit of a positive in that, in the sense that uh, he could have, uh, because of the way his son had uh, done with them, uh, I, I think he could have done what he wanted, so to speak, um, right. especially I mean, as the king. But he I mean, his son defiled them. Yeah. Any unrighteous king could have blamed them for that and or at least give them consequences for that, even if not blame them, um, even right. including punishment. And he doesn't. He he protects them now. But I will say puts them in a house under guard. That seems a little less protection, a little more 
detention, but maybe I'm just misreading it. Well, I think it could be taken that way. I think also maybe for their protection in a sense, you know, hey, um, they still in a sense, quote unquote, belong to me and I'm not having anybody else come and do this nonsense again. Right. right. Um, so. Well, that makes sense, you know. Um, you know, so anyway, we uh, we are going to move on a little bit. So he's yeah. he's put them up. He shut them up until the day of their death, living as in widowhood, um, but taking care of them, protecting them, depending on how you want to look at that. Now with verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to uh, me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, it is well with you, my brother. Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails onto the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Okay, <laughs> that's uh, that's interesting. <laughs> Take us through this, brother. What what has well, happened here? Well, well, let's let's um. Uh, kind of back that up again as you started there at four. You know, David is, he, it's, there's some urgency here. You know, within three days, this is, you know, get, get your guys together and let's go. Um, he does not want to have any delay uh, or, or, or short, the shortest delay possible in, in, in this pursuit of Sheba. Um, and of course, it's because, hey, he's going to do worse. You think Absalom was bad, he says. How, this guy's going to do us worse. Um, and, and so Abishai, which, uh, if I recall when I was reading this earlier, I think in the notes, it said something to the effect, this is Joab's brother. You know, sometimes the family things in here, I have a hard time keeping up with and you got almost have to have a program for it a little bit. Um, and of course, gathering up the Lord's servants, so they get David's troops together, um, and they go out. Um, of course this is, uh. Part of this army probably, or maybe up to a third of it, was what Joab commanded when they were battling Absalom. If I recall, it's 17 or 18, chapter 17 or 18, I think. Um, so um, even though he's not the commander anymore, so to speak, he, he moves, moves to sort of resume his previous position. Um, so here they come to what they call the great stone that is in... Gibeon. And I confess, I you know, read a little bit on this, and I'm not 100% sure where, where we land on, on what this might be. This might be the stone that we heard in 1 Samuel, um, or uh, maybe it's 1 Kings, where Saul had the people bring it uh, you know, out of some punishment for the treachery they had against him. Um, so uh, so there, here's, maybe it's, I, I'm not sure that this is any uh, necessarily any more uh, symbolism there other than sure. maybe a, a geographical sort of description of, of where they're at and what's going on. Uh, but it is sort of interesting that, you know, this is still, Saul is still sort of overshadowing, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, um, even though David is has got the throne. Um, and again, I would take that back to, you know, when we do things, there is a ripple effect that can happen. And so we do want to be careful, uh, even as we confess the sins that we have. But um, moving on here, um, I, you know, this is, uh, uh, like you said, kind of interesting. So Joab, you know, as, a, as in a, a position of, of greeting and, and taking him in and here, let me kiss your cheek and, and give you a greeting. Well, when I say kiss your cheek, let me, let me, um, let me really show you what I mean by taking my dagger 
and uh, <laughs> and using it on you. Uh, and I appreciate that the uh, biblical text does not, um, you know, paint over uh, this um, just a sort of, uh, you know, I don't think it's too gross, but at the same time, it's also not just painted over as it were. You know, and, and again, I, I can't help, you know, sorry, I, my first career, I, I worked in a homicide unit and it's not pretty. Right. Death is not pretty. And I think that it, it, we need to hear that, so to speak. Uh, I, you know, I think of this as I, you know, prepared to talk with you today. I, uh, you know, how would I preach this? What would I talk about? Well, you know, sin is ugly. Death is ugly. And, and this, this in the scripture here, uh, like you said, the Holy Spirit speaking to us, giving us these words. I think that's something that we want to pull out of this. And uh, what does Paul say? The wages of sin is death. It's ugly. Yeah. You know, and I think we do that. Well, the, first of all, the English interpretations or translations of the Bible tend to soften a lot of this, um, mm -hmm. folks should know. Uh, and then we as a culture certainly soften it. And, and sometimes it makes sense, right? We don't be, as you, I'm sure, are intimately aware. We don't want to be surrounded, and we don't, we shouldn't put ourselves in a position to be desensitized by these things because, well, what a what a what a troubled existence that is to have to deal with that. Uh, but at the same time, we sometimes will miss the reality of what is going on. You know, war is hell. That's what's going on. This is war. Uh, what Christ, you know, jumping way ahead, what Christ went through for us wasn't just oh yeah, he hung on the cross and. It was nice and clean, and now, you know, we don't have—no, this was a horrible thing that he experienced for us. Um, it, it, it was intentionally horrible from the point of view of the Romans. They really wanted to make a point. But I think it was also intentionally horrible by God so that we could look at that and really understand and say, that's where I should be. You know, yeah. and we go back here, and we see David, he's exercising justice on behalf of God, you know— you know, just heading back a little bit, it seems interesting because he tells Amasa to go summon Judah, but Amasa delays. We don't really know why at this point. And then, and then David, I guess, Plan B sends out a B shy uh, to take out some of the, you know, some of his men that's been following him, his SEAL Team six hundred men that have been, you yeah. know, going around with David. Uh, but then they they meet up there. But then Joab, right, we still have him. He's kind of commanding a, a little regiment, even though he's not officially in charge of anybody. So I'd almost, at this point, say it's a militia. Yeah. Um, but then Joab is trying to yeah. win the day. <laughs> this whole story about Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and he has this sheath uh, inside, of course, the sword's inside the sheath. And, and he trips in such a way that it falls out. I, I think that was intentional, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's he's trying to set up a, a slick way of of trying to, I guess, do what he did in terms of, you know, gutting this guy with his sword. Well, yeah, and I can, you know, if I might give the modern picture again, um, uh, previous career kind of thing, you know, when we would come up on a traffic stop or something, you, you unholster your weapon and have it ready. And that's what he was doing. Um, of course, for, in his case, for nefarious reasons, he, you know, he's wanting to, to take over, so to speak. And, and so he does it in this way, but I, yeah, I agree with you. I think the whole tripping thing was a, a facade. Oh, look, I've got to pick up my sword now and right. I haven't quite put it back in the sheath yet. Let me give you a kiss. That is to say with my sword. And I'm thinking, I don't know if this is a direct connection, but I, it doesn't really matter, but just trying to flesh out the text. Is this why Amasa was delayed? I mean, he says he went, but he was delayed beyond the set time. So then David sends out this this other team. But then it almost feels like a meanwhile, what's happening with Amasa? Well, that's because Joab has caught up with him. And Joab has grabbed him by his beard to kiss him, which, of course, is just customary greeting among mm -hmm. people who are friendly. But then, yeah, he strikes him in the stomach, spills his entrails on the ground, just this graphic thing. Plus, yeah. I think, what does it also say? Oh, it says that his, um, if Joab, it doesn't say where his sword was, but if Joab is grabbing Amasa uh, by the beard with his right hand, that means his sword is in his left hand. And mm -hmm. I don't, there's no indication that he's left-handed, so this is sort of another kind of, a surreptitious way. No one would have expected that he's going to stab him if he's got his 
his sword in his non-primary hand. Right, and that what and the text itself says uh, Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So, you know, if I might call it, you know, lack of situational awareness uh, right. on his part, because uh, it sounds to me, or as we read it, and I, I hear you read it, uh, there's this sort of surprise element. Uh, it seems uh, I just imagine Amasa's eyes wide open, like "Oh my goodness, what happened?" Uh, kind of thing. Well, you know, you, situational awareness is, I think, the right word there because I don't think it's that he didn't see it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a sword, yeah. but I think you're you're absolutely right. It's that he had no concern about it. Yeah. You know, it just it didn't worry him. He's got his sword in his left hand. Obviously, he just dropped it. He's just picking it up. There's nothing in his brain that's saying, "Okay, this is danger." Right. Uh, but this yeah. isn't the first time that Joab has uh, gotten up and up real close and personal with somebody to kill them in this way. It really recalls way back in 2 Samuel chapter 3 when Joab murdered Abner. Hmm. And that was also another graphic <laughs> a graphic dis- depiction. Yeah. It yeah, says it, there it, that, da- that Joab came out from David's presence. He sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David didn't know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died. For the blood of Ashel, his brother. So, uh, you know, he's this is sort of his mo, right? He he likes to say, "Hey, buddy, come here for a second, and then he just right. just stabs him in the stomach. This, I think, right. it gives yeah. us a little bit of a character analysis of Joab. Yeah, I can I can hear him now. Come on, bud, I love you to death. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Hey, I gotta I gotta show you something here real quick. Yeah. Well. Uh, so he, he, this is where we're at, you know, Joab has killed Amasa who's been sent out to kind of get some, uh, to get some recruits to summon up Judah, to go chase after Sheba at the same time, David sent out his special forces to also get him. But that's where we're going to have to leave it for just a few moments, folks. Don't go anywhere. When we come back from our short break, we will continue with studying second Samuel chapter 20. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Frank Rufato, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Charleston, West Virginia. You know, I know that you can listen to Thy Strong Word on the radio in St. Louis on AM 850, but if, if you're just maybe a little outside of that range, say in a different state or in a different country, did you know you can still listen to all the great programs of Thy Strong, uh, sorry, of KFUO, including Thy Strong Word, if I may say so myself, but also like Sharper Iron and Concord Matters. Um, there's just so many. Well, you can subscribe to this program or any of those on your favorite podcasting app. You can download, and I really recommend this, the KFUO Radio mobile app. Uh, if you download that on your iOS device or your Android device, you can listen to the live stream or catch up with any of the programs on demand. You can also listen live or on demand just by going on the internet. Go to kfuo.org uh, forward slash thy strong word or anywhere else and hear some of KFUO's great programming. Well, I'll tell you what, if you also want to share your thoughts or your questions with me, you know that I'm happy to hear from you. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Be sure to spell it right. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E. That's silent E on the end. Don't forget that one. And that's at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. I get people Facebook friending me all the time. You can just search for Phil Boo. We'll stay in touch that way. I love to hear your comments, your questions, even your concerns, right? If I get something wrong, call me on it, right? Send me a message. Say, hey, I don't think you're quite right. Uh, I, I love hearing that. 
you know, pastors really do. We love it when people are showing themselves to be in the Bible, keeping us on track. That's what we want. Well, Pastor Rufato, before the break, we, we, we kind of pause just as Joab goes up to Amasa. He grabs him by the beard, I guess in a friendly way, to kiss him, but then he stabs him in the gut and his bowels all drip onto the ground. It's a nasty, nasty scene. Anything else you want the people to know before we keep on reading? Well, I think, uh, uh, not to be a spoiler, spoiler alert, but again, as we talk about sin and consequences and all that, Joab, you know, as, as you talked about the story of Abner and then here, you know, this sort of pattern of behavior, if you will, um, he is going to meet his own destiny in a sense uh, in terms of punishment. Uh, and you can find that, in, if I recall, it's in First Kings in the first couple of chapters there, I think. Um, he ends up being put to death for his crime. So again, a little bit of a spoiler alert there in terms of that part of the story. Absolutely. And, and well, and not, this is, this is also a review, but I mentioned Abner earlier. Joab also is the one who killed Absalom. <laughs> I forgot about that. I don't know how I did, but yeah. So, so, you know, when he comes on the scene, bad things are going to happen, but, but at the same time, there are consequences, right? So let's keep on reading. I didn't actually make it all the way through verse 10. Verse 10 continues. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. And when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Let's pause there again at the end of verse 13. So now, now Joab is picking up the chase, uh, but what is this like? I guess Joab is aligning himself with David. He killed, he killed uh, Absalom. Now he's killed Amasa, but Amasa was David's man. So is this? Uh, I guess this is some some more deception on his part. But why are they chasing after Sheba? Why are they trying to do this? Well, I I find it interesting. It's sort of like you said, deception. It's a uh, propaganda, maybe if you if you will, as they as yeah. it seems like they sort of display or allow him to be a display, um, bleeding out on the road there. Um, and so it sort of sounds to me like, hey, we're doing David a favor here. We we're we're taking taking charge of the army on David's behalf. I mean, so let's go get, um, let's continue the pursuit, as it were. Um, and so Joab kind of gets what he wants. He he gets to be the the general or the the commander, whatever the appropriate term there would be. Yeah, it seems like now Amasa, who really has Joab's old job. He's killed him, and and he's like, well, he's dead, so you know, I guess I'm back in charge again. So whoever's for David, you know, follow follow Joab. Um, and but it does seem like it backfires a little bit. I think that's what we're being told here because yeah. it says when the when um when the man saw all the people that all the people stopped, like people just rubbernecked at this scene. He goes, oh wait, a minute, this is this isn't working. So he carries him out to a field, throws a garment over him. Um, people were shocked at seeing their leader slaughtered in such a way. I, I think Joab is not really thinking things out. This is not going to endear the people to him, but in somehow, somehow in his mind, he has reasoned that if this guy who has my current job is dead, then obviously I'll just be the next guy. Perhaps he's maybe trying to get back into David's good graces. In fact, he gets in trouble for trying to do that in his history. And now he's like, "Oh, look! I killed this guy. Come on, guys, let's follow me." Yeah. Um, it, it's it's almost like the 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 stalker who tries to do harm to the girl's boyfriend and thoughts that now she'll just have to be with him. It it just yeah. doesn't make any logical sense. Well, yes, but I, I think I think there is a little bit of um, uh, not only of what you've got, but the other side of that coin. Uh, yeah, listen, I have killed David's number one guy here. I'm taking over. And uh, we're going to throw him in the field because um, he's not worried they'd be buried or whatnot. We're just going to throw a sheet over him, and we're going to move on. 
And, uh, you know, you might want to, as we're heard in 11 there, you know, whoever's for David, follow Joab. Um, and so I heard a little bit thereof, because if you don't, you might end up with this guy. Oh, now, it doesn't so say that explicitly, but I sort of reading between yeah. the lines a little bit there. I can see that. So it's almost more of a, uh, you guys are all standing to gawk at this guy. He wasn't important. He wasn't important. Let's just, we're just going to throw him away. And like you said, the, there's always that lingering faith that if you don't obey, well, if he was willing to take out such an important person, then yeah, he's not going to care about you. Well, yeah, I, I definitely think there's some threats there for sure. Yeah, I, I think if I can, you know, I don't think it's too much of a stretch, but when we think it's sort of gangs that get together and, you know, one of the guys gets killed and he's sort of paraded, if you will, in some, some countries that have that. And, and, it, and it is a particular message to, you know, you need to align with us or you might join this guy in his casket kind of thing. Right. And um, so I, and, and maybe that's just my reading of it. It could be, but I, I, I just sort of get a sense because of Joab's previous treachery and what's going on that that sort of made sense to me that uh, he's sort of doing a double entendre there. Not only, look, I killed this guy and I'm in charge now, but because I'm in charge, you don't want to be like this guy. Well, whatever his intentions, it seemed to work, right? Because once yeah. this guy's not visible, verse 13, when he had taken, when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Uh, picking up with 14. Now, Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Bethmaach, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maach. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. And he came near to her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. And she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of Yahweh? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it from that, that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his head against hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab return to Jerusalem, the king. Okay, so we're going to pause there. That's the end of verse 23. Um, I, first of all, this, this lady, I, 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 she, she's, she's pretty awesome. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, she, uh, yeah, it, it's just funny how he's bringing all these soldiers, these bloodthirsty men looking for Sheba, and, and yeah, she comes out and she says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> What's your business here? See if I can help. Go ahead. Yeah, I, well, and it, it, she's, she's definitely has a wisdom, uh, uh, sort of uncanny wisdom around this. Now, of course, you know, he talks about, you're going, we're going to throw his head over the wall. Uh, what comes to my mind is the siege warfare of that time. Right. And that's, that is usually very brutal warfare and both sides lose a lot of people that way. So I think even Joab, it seems here is willing to listen to something that might reduce the the casualties, as it were, for his side, so he can keep his army strong. Uh, and so she's, she, of course, um, and I think in a, a similar way, uh, maybe she assessed the position they're in and thought, well, this is Joab, that this is the one who's treacherous and um, his reputation precedes him. Maybe, maybe we need to find a solution here. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we see this, uh, I guess this, I don't say concept, but we, we see time and again the, the wise woman coming in these stories and, and calling calm to the situation. 
and we see that here, right? I mean, she's she's like, tell Joab, I, I want to talk to, I want to talk to the manager, right? I want to talk mm-hmm. to whoever's in charge. And, and Joab comes, and she she doesn't know him from anybody. She's like, are you Joab? He says, yeah. And she says, she listen, people used to come and ask counsel at Abel or Abel. Now it, I, we don't know if this is like people would come and seek the will of the Lord, if people would come and just the city had a good reputation for having wise old ladies around intervening. I don't know. But, but I love the irony in that she says in verse 19, I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. And he's like, okay. So she just said that she's this peace loving, wise, faithful woman. And he goes, well, I'm looking for Sheba. I'm not looking to destroy the city. And she goes, okay. Well, we'll cut off his head and throw it to you. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, that's the, I don't know. I just, it just sort of strikes me as pretty funny. Well, well, yeah, it's very, very practical wisdom that she's exercising. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and it does, and it does bring about peace, doesn't it? I mean, it you does. say peaceful, but peaceful doesn't mean pacifistic. Uh, correct. Um, yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, we could learn a little bit of a lesson in today's thing. You know, if you're, if you're just unwilling uh, let's just put a, an example of, you know, you're with your family and somebody has threatened you or poses a threat. If you're unwilling to kind of get in between that because you're a quote, a pacifist, well, you're not really a peacemaker in that situation. You're, you're really just harmless. And, uh, I think she is setting it up to, to, to not necessarily, I'm not necessarily harmless, but Hey, I, I want to break, we want peace. We want to Let's be practical about this. You can, you can have your goal met by getting this guy. We'll give you his head and you'll have a trophy. Well, absolutely. I mean, she knows what makes for peace, at least in these times, right? And that is yeah. that if you don't want, because they've built this mound. And I think you, you mentioned earlier the idea of the siege warfare. They've built this mound where they are going to be able to take over the city. When she appeals to him, she appeals to him on the sense of, of justice, of history, of tradition, she, but you know, and he's still doing this in the name of King David, mm-hmm. and I think that part's interesting too. So it seems like he is very respectful of the history of Israel. Does not want to just brutalize people or destroy cities, but he does have this singular goal, and that is he's looking to he's looking to get this the Sheba guy, and so since that's his singular objective is to kill Sheba. Then she's like, okay, yeah, so the people of Abel would rather give up Sheba than see their city destroyed. Yeah. Well, we are now at verse 23, and this is going to finish up the chapter. So just a few verses here through 26. Now, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelathites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was the secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. Now, not exactly fascinating prose there. It's more like the end of the minutes of the meeting. Yeah. But, 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 but this is a lot of good information, though, right? I mean, we have, yeah. a, we have a lot of uh, insight into some of the roles that people, people were having. Well, and, and it, there's a matter of factness about it too. I mean, we're relaying the story and like you said, Hey, you know, we came to, we met and here's what happened. Right. And here's who's responsible for what, as it were. Well, and plus people might be wondering like, okay, with, uh, you know, uh, certain people now are dead, you know, she was replacing mm-hmm. Sariah as secretary, Ira, the gyrites replacing David's son as the priest, um, Adoram is added as the supervisor of the of the slaves of the forced labor, um, and uh, and of course Joab and all of them have the same roles. But but it's just interesting because Joab at this point we don't have any indication that he has any uh, consequences for the things that he had done. Yeah, well, yeah, for now he doesn't. Right, <laughs> it seems like he's riding high right now. But we know later. In fact, I think there's a little irony here. Um, in 23 there, now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, semicolon, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, 
was in command of the uh, Carathites and the Palathites. So Benaiah later, though, if I recall, also in Kings, is going to end up taking Joab's place. He'll be the he- he'll be the head of the army when, uh, under Solomon's reign. Um, so well, we've I just seen. Thought, I was going to say we've seen David's wisdom in in waiting for to either exercise judgment or waiting for God to bring about that judgment. Yeah. Um, I guess it's possible that at this point, David doesn't really know how his former general came to his end, or he does know, but also is pretty wise that as you're trying to unite a kingdom, you don't want to necessarily punish the guy who is followed by, well, most of your soldiers. Yeah, yeah. you've got a guy who can keep them in line, so to speak, and so you kind of tolerate a lot more than you probably want to. Exactly. And anybody who thinks that that's not exactly how things work today <laughs> is pretty, uh, it's probably a little bit more subtle than that, but it still definitely works that way, I'm afraid. Yeah. No doubt. Well, we've well, gone through this, this whole text and, um, you know, it's, I just think it's fascinating as we continue to see just, just event after event in this, I guess, development of the kingdom. I don't know. I mean, we as Christians look back at our lives and in the last 50 years, let's say, there has been so much dramatic change in our country when it comes to the role of believers. We have experienced an unprecedented period of blessing uh, until the past 50 years where things are starting to turn aside. I think, I think events like this, true sto- we call them stories, but I mean, they're, they're true stories. These are, this is history. When we look at the history of God's people here and throughout the, throughout the ages, I think we really are—we have to understand that there hasn't just been peace reigning among God's people. There's a lot of infighting here, but remember, they're also still fighting all the enemies around them. Mm-hmm. It's a constant battle to be faithful to the Lord. And so when we see some of the things that are happening to us today, which are far removed from the violence that we see in these types of events, um, I think it's good for us to remember that God doesn't promise us this easy life, but rather we have to constantly uh, be out there taking action to, uh, to protect it. I, I, mean, I don't know. What, do you, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, you know, as I do it, one of, one of the things, and this is sort of a personal, bugs me personally in a sense, is when people have this idea of, for instance, Jesus is just this wayfish, nice guy. He never gets angry about anything. And I'm like, have you read scripture at all? Right. Um, you know, on, on the contrary, uh, you can find several places where he has e- exhibited or expressed anger, but of course, being the being God Himself and and holy, uh, as Scripture says, "Be angry, but do not sin." He was able to do it without sin. But I, what I think of as I was looking at this is for us, I, I Psalm one forty four, where it says, "The Lord is my rock." And he trains my hands for battle, my fingers for, for warfare kind of thing. And, and I may have gotten that a little backwards there, but the, the basic gist there is that God prepares us for these very kind of things. For, for when Jesus sent the disciples out uh, in Matthew 10 and said, hey, you're, you're going to have problems. People are not going to like you. They're not going to like the message. And you're, it's going to be not, it's not going to be easy. And that, get, that gives me some comfort, and I would hope for my people and the folks that we serve, it would give them comfort, too, that, you know, it's okay, even in the culture we're in, to say we're, on, we're, on, uh, we're in the army of Jesus, so to speak. You know, no, we're not right. following Joab. We're not following David. We have the, the son of David who has fulfilled this covenant that God has made with uh, David's line. And that's in our through our vocations, God's prepared us for this. Uh, and so to me, that's, that's, a, that's comforting to know. Right. And, I, and it's, you talked about vocations too. I think it's important that we understand that, you know, we don't, we don't have the same call to say, um, acquire the land by warfare that we've been promised or anything like that. But we are called to stand up for God's truth to be able to defend our, what well, you know, the hope that's within us, that's literally scripture, um, yeah. and, and not to shy away from, from the conflicts that are out there, because through them, 
we have the opportunities to share the love of Christ with people. You know, that Jesus that you're talking about, the the soft-spoken, the wayfish Jesus, you said, you know, I call that the church basement Jesus. You know, I grew up in the church basement watching videos of this, you know, he's got nice, soft 70s hair, and, right. and, and, and you know, he's soft-spoken, and, and, and he just never raises his voice. And now there is a, you know, there is a, we have to make sure though, and you, you already said this, but it's worth repeating that Jesus was able to exercise indignation without sin. And, and we aren't capable of that in the same right. way that Jesus is. So we have right. to keep a check on ourselves, but at the same time, yeah, it's a, I think as, as people continue to encounter some, some struggles and some adversity and maybe even some persecution, we have to remember that, um, we're coming out of a pretty unique period in history for uh, for God's people. Well, I think we should we would be naive to think that we are not going to face the things that the early church faced at some point. Maybe not in my lifetime, but maybe my kids or my grandkids' lifetime. Yeah, you know, some of that I think it would not surprise me. Well, and I do think that, and we're going to talk about this once we finish up Second Samuel. I'm moving into the Book of Acts, but I, I do think we can probably. Um, connect ourselves a little bit with with the early church more than say the people of Israel out and out you know trying to fight for the promised land, but but yeah. still you know the fact that there is a fight is what continues to exist. Well, anything else, brother? Before we bring our show to an end, I just want to thank you for having me again. I, I folks, I just that are listening, you're listening to the right thing. We want to be in God's word because that really that's how He trains us, quote unquote, for the warfare. Absolutely, brother. Well, I would like to thank my guest this morning officially is the Reverend Frank Rufato, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Charleston, West Virginia. And tomorrow, when we come back, we're going to dive into 2 Samuel chapter 21. You see, the consequences of past bloodshed are coming back to haunt the kingdom of Israel. Famine ravages the land for three consecutive years prompting David to seek divine guidance. But that's what David's good at, right? And the Lord reveals that the famine is a result of the bloodshed committed by King Saul. <laughs> King Saul and the things that he did continue to affect the people of Israel. But God has some plans for them, and God has a plan for you too. So we will be back tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong hand.